from Duke University. This is Zeroing In, the numbers behind the 2016 election. In each episode, we focus on one number that sheds light on a key issue in the 2016 election. I'm your host, Ronnie Chatterjee, professor at Duke's Fuqua School of Business and the Sanford School of Public Policy. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Peter Fever and Larry Korb. Peter and Larry, as you know, we're here to talk about one number behind an important issue in the 2016 election. Peter Fever is a professor of political science and public policy at Duke and a former member of the National Security Council staff under both President Clinton and President George W. Bush. Larry Korb is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. Larry was a former director of National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a former Assistant Secretary of Defense under President Reagan. Welcome to you both, and thanks for being here. You know, an important topic in this year's election is national security. And one number that tells us something about national security is how much we actually spend defending the nation. Our defense budget was $597 billion in 2015, nearly as much as the next 14 nations combined. So what does this statistic say about how strong our national defense is? We'll start with Peter Fever. Peter, if we spend so much more than our peers, does it immediately follow that we must have a very strong national defense? Well, we certainly do have a strong national defense and spending a lot of money and not buying a strong national defense would be a problem. But the way that statistic is usually deployed is to suggest we're spending too much on national defense. And that statistic is only tangentially relevant to that question. Often when people use that statistic, they'll say, you know, many of those countries are also our our formal allies. So if you just look at the spending versus our adversaries, the ratio is even more favorable in our direction. But that is misleading. A better way to measure whether we have enough defense is measured against the threats, measured against the interests that we have to defend, measured against the quality of the military capability we're buying, and measure it against affordability metrics, whether our economy can actually afford those expenditures. When you use those more meaningful measures, you don't reach the conclusion that we're spending too much on defense. In fact, you reach the conclusion that both candidates for president have reached, which is that we need to uh, probably boost some defense spending. Great. And Larry, how about you? How do you see this number? And and what does it tell you about whether we're spending uh, too much or, or too little on defense? Well, what it tells me that is even if you control for inflation, we're spending more money than we did even uh, during the Cold War when I worked for uh, President Reagan. I do think it's relevant to see what the other countries are spending because if they don't spend, they will not be able to get the capabilities to deal with us. And as Peter mentioned, many of the next 14 countries are our allies Uh, the United Kingdom, uh, France, for example. And as has come up in this uh, campaign, uh, you know, we're going to work with our allies to deal with a lot of these uh, threats. By and large, what happens is people will use the fact that they're not getting everything they want in the Pentagon budget and basically then try and say we ought to get more rather than saying that this is too much. Because most of the debate, as Peter mentioned, both of the candidates seem to think we ought to be spending spending more. My feeling is you're spending enough. In fact, 
I think there are ways that you can cut the amount that you're spending and still provide for national security. And then finally, I think it's important to keep in mind, no matter how much you spend on defense, you can't buy perfect security because you not you can't uh, guard against every threat and every possibility. And if I look historically, this number is more than adequate. And Peter, let's go to you on that. I mean, so if we're spending more than the next 14, doesn't that mean that it'd be unlikely that a single nation, let's say Russia or China, could ever directly threaten our security? Well, on the contrary, what we've seen is Russia has been able to directly threaten interests that we consider important, maybe not vital, but certainly important interests uh, around the world. So you can you, you can be a threat asymmetrically to the United States, even when you're not spending the, the same amount that the U.S. is. The numbers are misleading for a couple reasons. As, as Larry knows better than most people, the U.S. defense budget includes a whole lot of expenditures that are not covered in other people's defense budgets, retired pay, for instance. Likewise, because we have an all-volunteer force, we are obliged to pay much higher salaries than most of our um, rivals have to pay. We also have an American tradition of uh, spending on capital-intensive forces as a way of trading off so we don't risk our lives. We are risking capital equipment. All of these things have the effect of increasing the per bang cost for the U.S. defense budget. And finally, Larry's right. You you can never buy perfect security. On the other hand, the last thing you want to do is search for perfectly efficient security, getting just the dollar more than you need and nothing more than that. Uh, that's risky because we cannot predict where the threats are coming from. And when the U.S. goes into a fight, it wants to fight overmatched. It wants to have an overmatched advantage over its opponents. And so it's going to buy an abundance of security, what was called a preponderance of power back in the Cold War. And that has served U.S. interests well. Now, are there savings on the margins with this or that weapon system that could be cut or this or that business practice that could be implemented? Of course, there's lots of room for defense reform. But at the end of the day, the U.S. probably needs to spend much more on defense than other states, point one. And point two, we can afford to do so. Defense spending as a percentage of GDP, which is the best measure for affordability, can our economy afford this? Defense spending is far lower today than it was when Larry was in the defense, uh, Defense Department, and three times lower than it was when Dwight Eisenhower was warning us about the military-industrial complex. The defense budget burden today is very manageable for the U.S. economy. And Larry, uh, going to you, one thing that's come up in the campaign has been this notion that one way we might be able to save money is by spending perhaps less on defending our allies and having shifting some of the burden onto them instead. Is that an effective way to reduce our defense spending or are there other sort of ways to get more efficient defense spending that you're proposing? Well, I think it, and it's interesting. It has come up. But uh, the last three secretaries of defense, Bob Gates, Leon Panetta, Chuck Hagel, and now Ash Carter, basically have told NATO you need to spend more because basically because you're not, there are things we're doing. For example, this year we've come up with money with they call the European Reassurance uh, Initiative, which is something like $4 billion. Well, if the Europeans were do, spending what they needed to and having the forces they should, we would not have to put more troops in Europe, more than the 30,000 
that we have. So I think that that is a, is a key issue. And I think it's resonated. I mean, basically, I don't like the way Mr. Trump has talked about it. But if you look at the opinion polls of Americans, they're basically saying, well, you know, why are we spending so much? And I think you have to be careful of the GDP. Our GDP is so much bigger than it was when I worked in government or during the Eisenhower administration. And one of the reasons that the percentage of GDP has gone down under Obama is because of the recovery that we've had and the growth of the, of the GDP. It does tell you you can't afford it, but it doesn't tell you that you ought to do it. And then finally, yes, we ought to give our troops the best equipment that they should have. But if you go back and you look over the last decade, the cost overruns in our weapon systems we're developing, it's like $400 billion. The Pentagon, in my view, has not been well managed since Dick Cheney was in there and when he had Don Atwood from General Motors or when Melvin Laird was in the Pentagon and he brought in David Packard or when Harold Brown was there and they brought in Charlie Duncan from Coca-Cola. You haven't had a strong deputy secretary of defense in quite a while. I mean, Paul Wolfowitz, who was the deputy under Don Rumsfeld, I like Paul, we worked together when I was in AEI years ago, but he's not a manager. And that's part of the problem that we have. And after Obama got elected, I tried to get several good managers in there for him, but he didn't want anybody to take the shine off of him. So he ended up with a nice fella, Bill Lynn, who was a former congressional staffer and a lobbyist. And Bill gets one mentioned in Bob's whole book. This is interesting. So, Peter, coming to you on these points and others, you know, both of you have mentioned sort of the changing nature of the threat, the idea that a generation ago we were thinking about a Cold War mentality, and now we're thinking about asymmetric threats like ISIS. How have the spending priorities change, and how should they be changing if they're not changing fast enough? Well, one of the consequences of the last five years has been to revive the threat from state-based adversaries. For the previous uh, five, ten years, ever since 9-11, we've been focused on non-state adversaries, terrorist networks, and we had gradually reoriented the, the military to focus on coin operations and what used to be considered lower-level non-state actors. But with the rise of Putinism and the rise of the leader in China and, and Chinese adventurism in the North China Sea, South China Sea, you are seeing now traditional state-based adversaries. And that requires a different mix of capabilities. So it, it requires expensive naval assets. It requires expensive air assets and a requirement to recapitalize uh, the force, which had been spent down in the decade, uh, 15 years of, of fighting wars uh, in the Middle East. And so some of the rise in cost that both Donald Trump and uh, Hillary Clinton have uh, advocate for a rise of defense expenditures just as needed to meet these new uh, emerging threats, which are really a return to an older form of threat that we hadn't had to face for several decades. And Larry, I mean, I think you brought this issue up in terms of the importance of management in the Pentagon. Looking into the next presidential administration, whether it's Clinton or 
Trump. How do you think about sort of how this management and the talent that the person brings in is going to impact, let's say, spending on a new set of priorities dealing with state actors and non-state actors? Are we moving fast enough in the defense bureaucracy or the things that the next president can do to make us more flexible and adaptive? Well, I think the key uh, uh, to having it is to have everybody knows who the secretary of defense is. And he and I hope this time it's a she because we've never had a woman secretary of defense. But the key, as I mentioned, is the deputy secretary who's able to move the Pentagon in the direction that they need. For example, when David Packard came in after Vietnam, he transformed the military. We went to what we called air land battle to deal with uh, the rising uh, Soviet threat. When uh, 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 Dick Cheney was there and, and they brought in uh, Don Atwood from General Motors, he downsized the force to reflect the end of the uh, Cold War. And I think you're going to need something like that in there to deal with it. Because as Peter mentioned, it's very interesting, General Dunford, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff this year, listed five threats. Number one was Russia, number two was China, number three was North Korea, number four was Iran, and he put ISIS last. But if you look at where the focus of the American people are and a lot of our forces, it's on dealing with ISIS. And we're going to have to see if, if that's the direction that we uh, want to go. Uh, should we be training the army for counterinsurgency or for you know traditional battles? This administration started what they call the pivot or the rebalance of the Pacific to deal with China, and they called it air-sea battle, which means you would be spending more on your aviation and your naval forces. We've talked a lot. The real question is, you know, has it been done? Because not only do you confront a bureaucracy in the, in the Pentagon, the military and civilian people, then you've got the Congress who is making uh, the decisions. I mean, Dick Cheney tried to cancel the V-22, this tilt-rotor, you know, Osprey that costs over $100 million led to all kinds of accidents, but the Congress kept it alive. And so that, that's something else that you're going to have to take a look at. And I don't know if you have time to do it, but the real key monetary thing for the Pentagon in the next administration is going to be, do you want to modernize all three legs of the nuclear triad, the land-based missile, the submarine-launched ballistic missiles, and the bombers, or go along with what Bill Perry, a former Secretary of Defense, has said, you know, let's just have two legs of the, uh, of the triad. And Peter, going to you on this and looking at the next president, you know, you've talked about how sometimes these numbers about defense spending can be misleading. Is there one category of spending or one particular item that you would strongly encourage us to increase spending on? And can you talk about why that is? Well, before I answer that, I'll, let me flag an, another spending area beyond the nuclear one. I agree with Larry that the country needs a strategic debate on uh, nuclear expenditures, uh, and that's probably coming. But we also need a strategic debate on the cost of compensation, uh, personnel costs in the military. The uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff signed a letter all of the chiefs and the chairman all signed a letter urging reform of the compensation system that the trajectory the U.S. was on was unsustainable. The cost of pay and benefits was – we couldn't sustain the trajectory we were on. We would end up having a, uh, a force that we could not equip because all of defense spending would go into 
personnel and none into weapon systems. So that, I would flag that as a place to focus attention on for debate. Now, to your question, I do think that we're going to need to recapitalize in the Navy and Air Force, that there's some significant deficiencies. They're a famous metric that Republicans like to bandy about, that we have the smallest Navy since World War II. That can be, as Larry would hop in, There's that's misleading in some respects, but at some point, quantity has a quality all of its own. And our Navy is stretched from the South China Sea to the Middle East to perhaps other scenarios. We may need to recapitalize the Navy. Mm-hmm. And Larry, final comments uh, on the Navy or, or response to Peter here. Well, I agree on the compensation. In fact, when I was in there, I made some reforms and then they undid them uh, 10 years later. And I've been writing about this. Just to give you an example, in the year 2001, the average cost of a man or woman in the service was $40,000. Now it's 140000 We put in uh, uh, health care benefits for re- re- retirees, uh, where, for example, the, there's no co-pays or no deductibles. And that's what the chiefs are talking about. And what doesn't get much attention is the cost of military retirement. I got it out of the defense budget for people who had retired before, if that was still in there, the budget would be like $70 billion higher. So we do need to do that. The number of ships in the Navy needs to go up. It's projected to go to about 308 now uh, in the next uh, decade. And I, hopefully we can, uh, we can sustain that. Uh, uh, Mr. Trump has talked about 350 ship Navy. The real question is, you know, what kind of trade-offs do you want to make to, uh, to get that? The Navy cannot afford to uh, modernize the nuclear leg of the triad. I mean, it's sea-based uh, missile system. It's asked for a special fund, the sea-based deterrence fund. Well, they haven't gotten that yet. Well, I want to thank Larry Korb and Peter Fever for an excellent discussion on a really complex issue. I don't think we could have gotten two better guests with your experience and knowledge on, on this one. That wraps up another episode of Zeroing In from Duke University. I want to again thank Peter and Larry for a fantastic and on-point discussion. For me, as the moderator, the biggest takeaway was when you're doing cross-country comparisons, both of the speakers mentioned you need to take into account what the mission is and how it's changed over time. Are we trying to achieve the same goals as the other nations on that list? And finally, you know, other characteristics about the country, how rich it is could be one thing uh, that Peter Fever mentioned. And to Larry Corr's point, as the nature of the threat changes, how do our spending priorities change and are we moving fast enough? For those listening at home, we'd love your feedback on Twitter at Aaron Chatterjee. Thanks for listening and see you next time on Zeroing In. This is Zeroing In. Find us on iTunes and at DukeCampaignStop2016.org.